Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of ECGHR in Conversation. This is the second episode of our third season entitled Which Way Forward Towards Ending Torture in the GCC Countries, where we will be tackling the future of the advocacy against torture. Today we welcome Brian Dooley. Good afternoon, Brian, and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. So I will shortly introduce you for those who might not have listened to our previous episode with you from October 2021 about the UAE. And if that's the case, you can always find it on our page. So you're an Irish human rights activist and author. You have been active both in NGOs and with international institutions. You are currently a senior advisor at Human Rights First. And in the past, you were active as an advisory board member of the Gulf Center for Human Rights. And you are also currently a visiting scholar at University College London. Perhaps you can now delve into your advocacy and your activism for human rights in the, in the Gulf countries. Thank you very much for inviting me uh, back to the podcast. Um, I enjoyed it very much last time and uh, I was delighted to be asked again. Um, so my work uh, focusing on, on the Gulf really has been um, primarily for human rights first and that's been just over i guess 11 years now uh, since the um, since the uprisings um, of uh, late 2020 uh, 2010 and, and early 2011 and yeah i've been advocating uh, sometimes directly uh, with gulf uh, governments although i've been effectively banned from going to bahrain since i think 2012 um, and some of the other countries I'm, I'm not allowed into either. But nonetheless, as you know, you know, and some of the other people you'll be talking to on this podcast also know that you know you can do advocacy from outside the country. Most of my focus um, has actually been with the the U.S. Uh, government, the benefactors um, of uh, several of those Gulf countries, specifically really the UAE and Saudi Arabia and uh, and Bahrain. And much of my work has been done lobbying in Washington to try to um, persuade the US government to use the influence that it undoubtedly has uh, with those Gulf countries. Um, but I have to say, you know, over the course of, of, I guess, four administrations, if you count, you know, both the Obama administrations, then Trump and now Biden, um, all of those administrations have been very reluctant to to use the influence and, and the power they have. And human rights has come a way down the list of their priorities in terms of their relations with the Gulf. And, you know, we, we see Biden is about to go to, uh, to Saudi in the next few weeks. Thank you. Thanks, Brian, uh, for presenting yourself. And uh, now I'm going to let the floor to my colleague Beatrice, who is going to ask you the questions. Mr. Dooley, you just mentioned that Western countries are reluctant to increase their efforts and use their influence in the fight against human rights abuses and more specifically torture in the Gulf. The European Union, the US government and the whole international community, of course, is well aware of the matter. And recent sessions at the European Parliament focus on the EU-Gulf partnership, also raising concern about abuses in the Gulf. However, the current geopolitical scenario and energy crisis seems pushing the human rights agenda of foreign governments in the background. In your opinion, is this a trend that is going to change anytime soon, or we will most likely see its stabilization? 
so I think that the, the way the conversation has been, uh, certainly over the last decade, um, in regards to how the, the European Union and the US uh, uh, address these issues in the Gulf, is really, it, it's put into you know, a list with all sorts of other things that they want to talk to, for instance, the, the government of Saudi about. Uh, and they realize that this is an awkward conversation. And so either it gets put to the very bottom of the list or as, as happened when uh, Obama visited Saudi, um, the issue just doesn't come up somehow. Um, and really, you know, it, it, it was for President Obama to make sure the issue did come up of human rights. Um, quite how it will be uh, brought up when, uh, when Biden visits Saudi, visits Saudi in, the, in a few weeks time, like we don't know. I think there is real pressure on Biden to raise these issues. I mean, you know, many members of, of Congress are very unhappy um, that he's going. Uh, there was an enormous amount of uh, media and political attention given to the, the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, and so for Biden to go and ignore human rights, I think is impossible. But whether or not he will just, you know, go through the motions of saying we have issues, you know, where we disagree on and we um, want to keep human rights at the centre of our foreign policy and sort of meaningless stuff like that, that might happen. Um, I think it's possible that the pressure that Biden is under will mean that he will really push for the release of some prisoners uh, who are particularly um, well known in the US, uh, which would be which would be good. Um, but but that doesn't really address you know the underlying uh, systemic problems of human rights abuses, including torture um, in in detention in Saudi um, and some of those other countries too. So you know the the, the war in Ukraine, the um, uh, the petrol shortage, all of these things are used as justifications really for those who would rather not raise those human rights issues. Um, I mean, either, you know, the test really is either you're for human rights or you're not. And if you're only for it sometimes, then you're not really for human rights. If you're only for human rights until the price of gas hits $5 a gallon, then you're not really for human rights. Um, and, and so stop pretending. I mean, you know, if you're not for human rights, then say so. Um, you can't be for it in some places, some of the time. Uh, and I think the problem that we've, we've had, um, meaning human rights organizations have had with both the EU, the US government and others is that they say they're for human rights. Honestly, it, it would just be much more honest if they say, you know, we're not really. Sometimes we are when it suits us, much of the time we're not when it doesn't. Um, it, that would be easier to engage with. But the idea that, you know, the EU and the US keep pushing this line that um, human rights is, you know, is at the heart of their foreign policy, that they have certain values that they will never retreat from, it's simply not true. Uh, and I think maybe, you know, I mean, I, I say this reluctantly, but, but rather than, you know, being able to to force these governments to live up to uh, their rhetoric. Um, it may be more realistic to, to, to tell them, look, just forget the rhetoric. Oh, talk to us straight. Talk to us when you're actually interested in human rights and when you're not. Um, and just let's all concede that you're instrumentalizing it 
you're very selective about it, you're politicizing human rights. And maybe then we can have a bit more of, a, of an honest conversation. Um, so I, you know, in answer to the last part of your question, do I, do I think that the trend is gonna change? Um, not in the immediate future, I don't think so. That's not to say that, you know, progress can't be made uh, in some places here and there, particularly around, I think, some prison releases. Um, but I, I think that the, you know, the trend as I've seen it over the last decade uh, doesn't look like it's about to turn a corner. We have been talking about countries being clear regarding their willingness to set up human rights as a priority. And recently, at the European Parliament level, there has been voices suggesting that foreign governments should prefer private channels to promote human rights in the Gulf because they have been identified as the best way to avoid the public shaming and condemnations that Gulf countries perceive as a threat. In your opinion, this can really be a secure way for the promotion of human rights and can accountability be achieved in confidentiality far away from the public scrutiny? Also, an important aspect and worrying aspect to consider is the lack of trust that people of the Arab Gulf have in their governments. Is it really fair to ask survivors of acts of torture and their family members to put all of their trust and hopes in a channel in which the main voices are the one of authoritarian leaders and their Western partners? So I understand the logic um of people who who suggest that uh, you know you may get better results by talking behind closed doors by refusing or, or avoiding the like the public shaming i mean i think that there's a a, a rationale to that um i have to say in in the years that i've been doing this work which is you know decades i've never seen that work um I guess it could have worked in some times I've never seen, uh, but particularly in the context of the Gulf, the only times I've seen progress, the only times I've seen uh, people being released from prison or being allowed to leave the country, uh, the only times I've seen unfair court verdicts overturned uh, is when there has been a huge amount of sustained publicity, negative publicity against whatever country it is, whether, whether it's the UAE or Bahrain or Saudi. And so my fear, and I think it's well-founded, is that government officials in the EU, for instance, but we hear this in Washington too, but, but government officials say that they, they are going to push the, the private behind closed doors diplomacy. Um, and they say it's because, you know, they, they think it's going to um, more likely to achieve results. I think they often say it because it's just easier for them to do. They don't like the, the public naming and shaming, the, the governments react badly to them, the, the, the governments um, react negatively to being criticised. So I don't think it will work, the private channel. And I, in fact, I even am very sceptical that it'll even be done. I think what's, what's possibly going to happen is that officials from Europe and, and, uh, and the US and elsewhere will say that they're raising these issues privately and they're just not. At least when it's done publicly, you can check um, whether or not you know, the European Parliament or European government or the State Department or whoever it is has raised the case publicly because you can see whether it's there publicly or not. If they claim to be doing privately, I'm not so sure they always are. 
Despite remaining a widespread practice, torture is internationally banned, and governments also have numerous international mechanisms to denounce torture and demand accountability. We can think about the UN complaints and the UN Magnitsky regime and many other mechanisms. In your opinion, can we really rely on such instruments and can these instruments be effective? Or do you think that at the moment human rights are so politicized that the eradication of the practice of torture is not feasible? So I don't think that they're going to eradicate human rights abuses in the Gulf or anywhere else in the world. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that in my lifetime I'll see the eradication of human rights abuses anywhere. Um, I think they can work sometimes. Um, I think um, that the, the Magnitsky-type sanctions, I mean, whether it's those or others, uh, are worth doing. Um, I think a weakness of them is that they are being applied selectively. And so, uh, for instance, as far as I know, the US government has yet to sanction any official under Magnitsky from any of its Gulf allies. So clearly that's a problem. Um, but I have seen elsewhere uh, outside of, of the Gulf um, those sorts of sanctions being pretty useful. So I, I don't think it's an all or nothing approach there. I don't think that they're going to stop uh, things happening in the Gulf. They're certainly not going to stop things happening in the Gulf if they don't even apply them to the Gulf. Um, but I think that, you know, some of those in international instruments are not useless. I mean, I, I think the fact that the, that the repressive governments in the Gulf and elsewhere um, spend so many resources on trying to counter, um, you know, what's raised at, international, at the international level, whether it's in a universal periodic review or criticism by the Human Rights Council or... Uh, initiatives by individual parliaments. If they really didn't care, they wouldn't look bothered, and they do look pretty bothered. Now, whether that's enough to get them to change their behavior really is the key. And like I say, that, that can happen um, in some cases where there is an enormous amount of public criticism, um, which includes being, I think, embarrassed um, by some of those international instruments. So I, I, I you know, under no illusions about how great or effective those sorts of things are, uh, whether it's sanctions or whether it's been, been named um, at a UN or some other level. Uh, but I don't think they're totally useless and I think they can work. Over the past decade, there has been some level of international pressure coming from civil society organizations and individual states, which demand the end of the practice of torture and other human rights abuses in the Gulf. Despite this international pressure, Gulf countries still rely heavily on torture in their systems. What do you think is the reason behind it? So I think torture, torture is a weird thing and, you know, it, it happens in in many parts of the world and used to happen um, in many other parts of the world. And I think when uh, it, it creeps into a criminal justice system and it's sort of acceptable, even if it's illegal, it's sort of acceptable um, 
in terms of how a, a, a prisoner is, is interrogated or punished. I mean, sometimes people are tortured for information they have. Sometimes they're just tortured as punishment. And, and you know, the, the torturer isn't really looking for any information at all. Um, that just seems to be in several of the Gulf countries, at least, uh, like a habit, a custom. Um, and I don't particularly think it, it's, it, it even really is needed to, um, to get a conviction. I mean, the convictions that we see of human rights defenders in the Gulf often come after torture um, because, because, you know, often people are forced to confess. Uh, but frankly, I think that the, the judiciary is so politicized um, and just does what the government says that they don't even really need the forced confession. They don't really even need the torture. Um, I don't think they need the piece of paper to say that the, uh, the defendant confessed, or if they do need that piece of paper, they could just make one up themselves. So it's a little, it's a little odd to me that when a government, when an authoritarian government has so much control, I mean, it, it, it seems to play into sort of like a psychology of a, of a, a totalitarian government and they need total control. And the total control also uh, extends to the, the humiliation and the abuse and the, the physical torture of a, a prisoner. It's, I think it's a very odd thing for, for, um, for those countries to do, for any country to do. Um, and I don't think they need it. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's there really as as punishment, as it's a deterrent to other people to do human rights activism. Um, it, it's sort of there to secure a conviction, but like I say, I don't think that they actually need uh, a confession um, to find somebody guilty if they want to find somebody guilty. Um, I, was, I was reading, um, in fact, just the day before yesterday, I was reading a novel by um, the Russian writer Pushkin in the 1830s, and he was talking about the abolition of, of torture uh, in the Russian uh, judicial system uh, in those days and how absurd it was in that, I mean, the logic of it really is if somebody confesses, then it means they're guilty, but that itself is absurd because if somebody denies they did a crime, it doesn't mean they're automatically innocent, right? And so the confession itself is, is pretty dubious, um, especially, of course, if, if it's been tortured out of a defendant. Well, thank you, Brian, for all these insights. And maybe before we, we, we end the podcast, we would like to um, ask you a very last question uh, to maybe conclude uh, this episode. And uh, we will then um, join uh, the title of uh, this um, the season, which is uh, Which Way Forward uh, Towards Ending Torture in the GCC Countries? So, to your opinion, uh, which is the way forward uh, towards the end of torture in the GCC? So, the, the, a weird thing about torture is that it can be ended um, very quickly. I mean, all it needs, and I know, I know it's, it's a big ask, but what it needs is the political will to do so. But you could, given the political will, end torture this time next week. If the authoritarian governments who have such absolute power were to say, okay, we're not torturing anymore and anybody that does it will be held to account, then it would, it would stop almost overnight, right? We hear these words about torture being, you know, deeply embedded in the culture, 
um, that it's endemic. Um, and while that's true, I think that often gets confused with the idea of something being inevitable. You know, I mean, I, I, I remember times when, you know, homophobia, for instance, was endemic, embedded in cultures. That's true, but that didn't make it inevitable. And we've seen massive progress in some cultures and some contexts, which um, have really addressed um, the homophobia in, in a very positive way. And there is, when I say there's no reason that can't happen uh, with torture, I mean, you know, I, I absolutely see the obstacles, but, you know, torture is not inevitable to be happening this time next year or this time in 10 years in, in any country, including the Gulf, no matter, no matter how long its history of torturing was. Uh, I mean, what's needed, of course, is um, an end to corruption in the political judicial system. Um, but, it, but even in the short term, you know, there are, there are things that, that other governments, European governments and others can do to, um, to press for the end of torture. I think one fairly straightforward thing which isn't being done is that when um, governments send trial observers to trials in, in, in Bahrain or, or in fact now I think as I understand it they're allowed to observe under certain circumstances trials in Saudi now too uh, but the general protocol the etiquette of that is that a diplomat is sent by you know by let's take you know randomly the Italian or the French embassy and they go and sit in the court uh, and that's supposed to be a sort of a message to the court that you know the EU or an EU country is watching you, right? Um, you better play by the rules. Um, but actually what happens is that it doesn't necessarily make that court play by the rules of international standards um, because the observers don't speak out, you know, that evening and say that was an unfair trial. The defendant had clearly been tortured. Um, this, isn't, this isn't due process. Uh, they could start doing that from tomorrow if they wanted. You know, the, the EU governments, when they send observers to trial, could say, OK, we're going to send observers, but they're not going to stay silent. If they think someone's been tortured, um, we're going to say so in a statement the next morning. Uh, that could be done immediately. And I think that that would help certainly reduce um, the number of defendants on trial who've been tortured. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot, Brian Dooley, for your participation in this episode. Um, we were absolutely delighted to have you uh, during this episode of ECDHR uh, in Conversation. Um, and we hope that you, dear audience, um, also enjoyed uh, listening to uh, Brian's insights on uh, torture and the way to end torture in the GCC countries. We also hope that you will uh, listen to our other um episodes on the same topic with Ali Moshaima and to our other um, episodes from previous seasons that are still available um, on your um, listening platforms. So thank you. Thanks a lot and see you soon.